Shattered Bonds, a podcast that tells the story of a family's journey to redemption, a family that has been torn apart by secrets, lies, betrayal, and violence, a family that has to confront the past and the present and find a way to heal and reconnect. It's an exploration of the human condition, of the power of love and forgiveness, of the resilience of the human spirit. It's a podcast that will make you laugh, cry, think, and feel. This is part six, A Father's Journey of Faith and Family. When David Henry hears stories of people whose faith drives them to do impossible things, he feels himself welling up with something like pride. Holy men who cross hot coals without getting burned. Sick people healed by prayer. Scientists refer to it as mind over matter. You've heard the stories. 98-pound mothers lifting cars to rescue their trapped children. They tell them on TV, all the late-night real estate hucksters urging viewers to visualize success in order to achieve it. They call it the power of positive thinking. David Henry watches the infomercials and docudramas in the dead of night when the rest of his family is asleep. He wants to believe that the human animal is capable of greatness. But deep down, he is not so sure. David's son Christopher is studying karate. On Tuesday afternoon, David sits on a metal folding chair inside Chris's karate school, his dojo, as Chris calls it, and watches his ten-year-old son prepare to break a wooden board with his fist. He is nervous. All the other kids in the group are so much bigger than Chris, though of course this is why they put Chris in the dojo in the first place, because he is small for his age and the subject of bullying by bigger kids. David has taken the afternoon off work to watch. His brother and mother are arriving in a few hours, and he won't be back to the office for ten days, though he will be reachable by phone and email. He can still be paged, text-messaged, and IM'd. As always, work is his crutch, his escape. Sitting there, he's already inventing reasons to excuse himself from uncomfortable family moments, citing this or that sales memo that has to be revised, this or that crisis that must be addressed. He sits in the second row with his eight-year-old daughter, Chloe. She has a single pigtail sticking out from the left side of her head, a sign that Tracy got distracted, probably by a phone call while dressing her. She's adorable, David thinks, and not just because she's my daughter. Chloe has a way of talking that makes you think she's an absent-minded professor trapped in the body of a little girl. There's a similar sensibility and style, that infuriatingly endearing mixture of arcane scientific knowledge and an inability to tie your shoes. Did you know a great white shark bite is equal to 25,000 pounds of pressure? She says, kicking her little feet. David loosens his tie. The class is going through its warm-up exercises. Dozens of little fists punching the air. Dozens of little mouths yelling, Hi! Yes, he says, even though he didn't. David doesn't like to be outsmarted, certainly not by an eight-year-old. Did you know that most fruit flies live for only 24 hours? He says. Duh. He reaches out and rests his hand on the warm little crown of her head. The alarming thing about Chloe, the thing he hasn't come to terms with yet, is that she is already growing breasts. Eight years old, and her skinny little chest is already starting to sprout. Is it a sign of the apocalypse? He wonders that children are maturing so young? She's eight, for Christ's sake. Tracy blames the milk they drink, all the growth hormones. If only they'd bought organic, she says. Her little girl would still have four more carefree years before facing the stares and taunts of other children, before anything like a sexual thought should have to come into her head. 
At least she hasn't gotten her period yet, David tells her. Yet, stresses Tracy, who hunts for red every time she washes her daughter's underwear. This is the kind of world we live in, thinks David, where everything happens faster than it used to, where nothing follows a predictable course. Inside the dojo, Christopher sees his family and waves. Chloe waves back, using her whole arm. She loves her older brother the way some people worship gods. Seeing his son in his white karate uniform, David feels that irrational swell of love, that exuberant terror that comes from loving someone so completely and unconditionally you're certain they will be killed. It is a baseless fear of losing everything and no less powerful for its ridiculousness. What would I do? David wonders. How would I survive? At the same time, the boy is such a pain in the ass that sometimes David thinks his head will explode. Unlike his sister, Chris is no brainiac. He's more physical, turning everything into a weapon or a game. The kind of kid who stays up past his bedtime playing hoops in his room with a trash can and a pair of rolled up socks. He doesn't like math or science, isn't an eager reader. He likes to go out and get dirty a quality David wishes he could appreciate more. Which is not to say David's not athletic himself. He loves a good game of catch, a long run. But you need to balance the physical with the mental, he thinks. That's how you get ahead in this world. Right before the show starts, Tracy shows up with Sam, edges her way through the crowd of housewives to the seat David has saved for her. The baby is bundled up in her arms as if for winter. Jesus, Trace, he says, pulling off the baby's hat. It's 80 degrees out. This is L.A., not Anchorage. Tracy collapses into the seat next to him, drops her oversized shoulder bag on the floor. She loves being a mother, but after 10 years, gives the impression that she still hasn't quite gotten the hang of it. It was cloudy when we left, she says, shrugging out of her sweater. She is a gorgeous woman still at 37, though there are dark sweat stains under the arms of her t-shirt. This is something David has always liked about her. She is a sweater, visceral, animal. Her breasts are big and have yet to drop fully, even after three kids. She rarely wears makeup, and when she does, it is artfully applied, as if by a freshman to a plastic head at some suburban beauty school. In bed, she still bites him hard enough to draw blood. Did I miss anything? She asks. No, they're just warming up. The children jump around on mats in the center of the room. Their instructor, a ponytailed stuntman wannabe with a Steven Seagal voice, shouts encouragement. The whole thing has that imprecise amateur flavor of all family activities. As a parent, you get used to sitting through bad theater, bad music, bad sports. You come to expect a certain level of chaos and inaccuracy. It is endearing to no one else. On the floor, Christopher sees his mother. He grabs the shirt front of the girl in front of him, steps forward, and throws her over his hip. Hi! Look what a big boy I am, he is saying. Hey! shouts the woman to their immediate left. She comes half out of her seat, like she's about to sue someone. But when her daughter jumps up laughing, she's forced to settle back and wait for the next offense. They're just playing, David reassures her. The woman has her Blackberry out and is checking her email. Not so rough, she says absently. I told them, my Sally has delicate skin. Tracy leans over. Maybe this was a mistake, she says quietly to David, referring to the whole karate experience. She has never liked the idea of violence, 
And ever since he started taking karate, Christopher has been wandering the house punching things. They have dents in their sheetrock and fist-shaped smudges on all the appliances. Tracy has on several occasions had to stop her son from demonstrating throw holds on his sister. It's for defending yourself only, she told him. That was the point, not to turn your body into a weapon. Christopher liked this. The idea of his body as a lethal force. When his father came home that night, Chris jumped out from behind the coat rack, adopting one of his lethal karate stances. Ha! he yelled. Ha yourself, David said, throwing his jacket over the boy's head. The instructor lines the kids up. He bows to them, and they respond, their little heads almost touching the floor. They look like hand puppets next to the big man. He turns to the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. For the next half hour, you will see a different side of your children. Discipline and honor. These are the facets we focus on here. We try to instill a sense of mindfulness and fair play. These are lessons I had to learn the hard way after many years of drinking and petty crime. But then, thanks to my sensei, I cleaned my act up. And now I do fight choreography for several fabulous Hollywood films. Listening to him, David thinks they should have done more research before enrolling Chris in this particular dojo. The younger kids, six, seven, eight, pair off and start sparring. They jump around on little legs, throwing their limbs about in exaggerated movements. It looks a lot like play fighting, like the regular household spit punching that goes on every day. We're paying 50 bucks a week for this, thinks David. But then the little kids sit down, and it's time for the older ones to show their stuff. Chris walks out to the center of the floor. He turns and bows to his opponent, a hulking ten-year-old boy who looks like he was recruited from the Russian preteen weightlifting team. David feels that familiar worry settle into his stomach. He wants to run onto the mat and punch the kid in the face, protect his son at all costs. Chris adopts a stance, elbows bent, knees. David can see the concentration on his face. He wishes he could lock his son up in the basement, keep him from harm for the rest of his life. Instead, he is about to witness a juvenile reenactment of a Mike Tyson blowout. His hands are fists, the nails digging into the palms of his hands. He is a man who has taken out over $2 million in combined insurance policies. The big kid lunges forward, and David rises involuntarily out of his seat. But just as the kid's arm thrusts forward, Chris steps aside and chops the bigger kid across the back. Point, yells the instructor, and David feels that bottom of the ninth inning thrill. What a warrior his son is, and by association, what a warrior his father must be. He looks over at Tracy, grinning, but she doesn't share his zeal. Her face is still tight with worry. He smiles at her to let her know everything is okay, puts a hand on her leg. There's almost no gravity on the moon, says Chloe. If they were fighting on the moon, one of them could just fly right off. David musses her hair. In two hours, his mother and brother will descend on his house, bringing with them all kinds of emotional chaos, like a visit from the loony bin. But right now, the five of them are a family, coherent, intact. Right now, they are insulated, self-sustaining, robust, this will change the minute his mother arrives, dropping her casual cruelties, sitting with her liquor, watching the children play with pained skepticism on her face. Don't they have anything interesting to say? She will ask. Which one is Sam? 
David has made sure there is plenty of wine in the house. The kids have cleaned their rooms. They have prepared as if for a natural disaster, laying in water and batteries. The cars have plenty of gas, and for some reason, Tracy bought six cans of mixed nuts. David's cell phone vibrates in his pocket. He takes it out. The caller ID says J for joy. He slips his phone back into his pocket. Who was that? His wife wants to know. Just checking the time, he tells her. The match ends with Christopher easily besting the bigger, slower kid. His usual plodding deliberateness has been replaced by concise grace. He steps and turns, throwing crisp kicks and chops. No energy is wasted. David feels hustled, as if his son has been setting him up all this time, playing a role, the flat-footed, monosyllabic schlub. The other kids take their turn dancing around on the gray mats, boys and girls. Then the instructor herds his students into a circle. He pulls out a stack of wooden boards. As one, the parents lean forward in their seats. The boards look substantial, impervious, and the children's hands are so small, so fragile. Some mothers glance out through the plate glass window to see if an ambulance is standing by. One isn't. Can I ask Christopher Henry to come up? Says the instructor. Chris jumps to his feet. Tracy reaches over and grabs David's hand. How can this work? She says. He's ten years old. He's basically punching a tree. David doesn't respond. He watches his son step up to the instructor. Two big kids are holding the board between them. Okay, Chris, says the instructor. Remember what we practiced. Close your eyes. See the board break. Chris steps up to the board. He does a few choreographed arm maneuvers, then reaches out and touches the board with his outstretched fingers, his palm flat, thumb tight against his index finger knuckle. Watching, David thinks of his son praying, down on his knees every night before bed, hands clasped together before his face. David remembers the first time he saw Chris do it. He was stunned. Where had his son gotten it from? They weren't religious in his house. Nobody ever said grace. They said, bless you, if you sneezed, but they didn't mean it. And yet here was their son, down on his knees, praying. For what? To whom? David assumed it was the Christian God, but it could just as easily have been Allah, Vishnu, L. Ron Hubbard. What do you do in that situation? Have they taught him prayer in school? Taught him to believe in Jesus? To ask God for forgiveness? Love? David and Tracy stood in the doorway looking at each other, their mouths agape. It was cute and disturbing at the same time. This was one of those moments when you wish your kids came with a manual. How do you question a ten-year-old's faith? When your kids believe in God and you don't, it makes you strangers. But then faith is the issue here, isn't it? A ten-year-old boy staring down a solid piece of wood. The whole key. David thinks, as he watches his son prepare to do battle, is believing you can do it. He himself is not a man of significant faith, even in other people. He's always sort of surprised when things work out, when he closes a deal or the kids get good grades. To him, the world is a place of unanswered prayers and dumb luck. And yet there are heroes in the world, men who believe, who triumph over inestimable odds time and time again. There are soldiers who rely on their training to save them, snake handlers who've never been bitten. For these people, failure is not an option. It doesn't even enter their minds.
David wonders what it would be like to be so confident. He is a man with two wives, and yet he still can't believe he got one woman to marry him. Can't believe he has produced four amazing children, despite the inarguable proof. And then there's his mother, who doesn't even believe enough to do ordinary things. Leave the house, stop drinking. She is the opposite of an achiever. She can't even work up the strength for failure. Chris takes a step back, bows. The board hovers there in front of him. Tracy squeezes David's hand harder. David pictures himself carrying his son to the car, rushing him to the emergency room. He pictures the mangled fingers, the broken bones. Then he puts these thoughts out of his mind. In that moment, he is convinced that not only must Chris believe for this to work, for the board to break, but his father must believe as well. David believes that it is essential he see the board breaking in his mind, or else it won't. His son pulls back his arm, takes a deep breath. In the gallery, everyone holds their breath. David visualizes his son punching, the board breaking. He wills it to happen. Then in one sharp motion, Chris shoots his hand forward, shouting, Hey! and snaps the board in two. It breaks with a great wooden crack. In the gallery, everyone applauds. No one can believe it. David feels his heart surge and threaten to explode. Chris runs around the mat, a huge grin on his face. And then Chloe is off her chair and running over to her big brother. She throws her arms around him, and they jump up and down together, lost in filial bliss. And watching them, David finally understands the meaning of family. It comes to him like a great stone tablet handed down from above. Family is everyone you can't live without.